When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Ko-fi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to History Hack. I'm Kate and I'm here today with Alex. Who have we got on today, Alex? Oh, I'm really excited today. I'm always really excited. I say that every day and people must think it's a cliche, but it's not because I really don't know what I wish I knew about this subject, if you get what I mean. So we have Jonathan Harris with us, Professor of History at Royal Holloway, expert in the history of Byzantium and the Crusades, author of The Last World of Byz- uh, Lost World of Byzantium and An Introduction to Byzantium, 602 to 1453. And we're going to talk about that year span today. Jonathan, welcome. Hello, Kate. And hello, Alex. It's going to be really good. I was just saying, like, I think this is, people don't know enough, do they? And people they don't know anything. Heard. People know the word and that's about it. And the word means something, uh, it means sort of devious and complicated, doesn't it? You talk about you know, Byzantine administrative system. So it's a kind of negative yeah. connotation straight away. Well, let's give that a kick in um, because I think we've been talking off air and we all know what historical things we'd like to give a kicking to now. But if we're going to talk about the history of an empire, we really should start at the beginning, shouldn't we? So the span you've given it is 602. So what I know and, and what I know is not a lot about Byzantium is that essentially it starts off as half the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire is dwindling away and it ends up very weak and divided in half. And this is the eastern half, isn't it? Well, you know, you're, you're right, Alex. And of course, this is one of the many weird things about the Byzantine Empire, because you think about empires, normally there's a kind of pattern, isn't there? They sort of rise and they conquer lots mm. of things. Then they have a kind of heyday where everything's brilliant and then they decline and fall. Yeah. Um, you see, Byzantium, it kind of misses out, misses out numbers one and two. Um, it goes <laughs> straight to number three um, because it, it, it actually is the product of the decline of the Roman Empire. Uh, you've got this gigantic empire, it stretches all the way from Syria to uh, northern England. Um, it becomes, it's just too big. Nobody can, can, can really defend it if it comes under attack from lots of different directions. So what they do is they take a number of sort of um, measures. They start thinking, OK, we'll have an emperor in the west and an emperor in the east to take care of each of these two halves. And maybe we won't hang around in Rome anymore because it's, it's an awfully long way from the frontiers. So we'll have forward bases closer to the frontier. 
Um, in the West, we'll hang out in Ravenna or Trier in Germany. And in the East, well, what about this place, Byzantium, um, a city um, on, the, on the Bosphorus there, uh, closer to the Eastern frontier? And they rename it Constantinople um, in honor of the emperor who was ruling at the time, Constantine. Um, and then in due course, the Western half gets overrun um, and the Eastern part sort of carries on. And that's, that's where the Byzantine Empire comes from. But um, it's kind of misleading in a way, because by the time, by about 700, um, all that's left really of the Eastern Empire is pretty much Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, um, and the Balkans. And it's very different from the old Roman Empire. By now, it's, it's become Christian. Uh, the old Olympian gods have been consigned to history. New, ca new capital city, Constantinople, no longer Rome. Uh, and of course, they don't speak Latin anymore. Um, they're all speaking Greek. So you can see why effectively historians looking back on it think, well, we've got to give it a new name. Uh, we'll call it the Byzantine Empire. We won't call it the Roman Empire anymore. But effectively, it's still the Roman Empire. Um, and that's what the people who lived there called it. They may speak Greek. They may not look like Romans as we conceive them, but they think they are Romans. They consider themselves to be that. So the Const Constantinople, the Constant, is that the Constantine that switched Rome over to Christianity? That's the guy. I mean, he, get, he really deserves the credit more than anybody else. He's the guy who starts the process of changing religion, although he hedges his bet, bets for most of his life. Um, and he also founds this new capital city of Constantinople, although he probably didn't mean it as a new capital. Um, he probably thinks it's just going to be a kind of forward base, but it, because it's so successful um, mm. by about 500 um, CE. I mean, we're talking of, of several hundred thousand inhabitants. It grew sort of exponentially. I'm going to go off down a rabbit hole already. What does early Constantinople look like? Um, I suppose, I mean, you, there is a description of it by a, a guy writing in about 500 mm. called Zosimus, and he says it was one gigantic great building site. Okay. So many people were pouring in that um, they, they, you know, they're building everywhere to accommodate them. So they're actually starting to put piles into the sea, uh, drive those in, actually building platforms so they can, they can build houses on those. Um, That's yeah. That's mad. That's, so it's basically like a, a medieval, or medieval, very early medieval Milton Keynes. It wasn't org an organic thing like Rome that's developed over centuries. It was just chucked up. It did, it did grow very, very fast. And of course, yeah. it, 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 it contradicts our idea of the decline of the Roman Empire, where everything is falling apart. Mm. Not so. Constantinople is booming in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. Absolutely. So how is society structured in the Byzantine Empire? Um, I mean, we're talking about quite a long period of time, aren't we? So how does that change? I mean, is it a feudal style system that we're looking at? Yes, I mean, it's, it's certainly a, a different kind of medieval society from that in the West. I mean, we're talking the Middle Ages here, aren't we, really? Um, so what about this word feudal? Does that apply? It's a difficult one, feudal, because medievalists, are, uh, you know, these days are kind of reluctant to use it. Um, but I suppose the kind of classical definition of, of feudalism, um, as opposed to the popular one, is, is feudalism as is a society where... Um, military service is given in return for holding land and there's a, a, a tie between a lord who gives you the land and the vassal who gives the military service and that, that uh, is a kind of 
definition that people came up with. It's sort of slightly dated now. Um, but that, ne that never really applies in Byzantium, or certainly not before about the 12th century, um, because Byzantium has a different kind of economy from Western Europe. That's really where the difference lies. Uh, Byzantium never loses a money economy. Uh, throughout the period, the emperors issue coins in gold, silver and bronze, and they circulate widely. Um, in the West, in the early Middle Ages, they, they, uh, they're very, very short of silver and precious metals generally. Um, so coinage is quite rare and not, uh, uh, not used much. Uh, so that means the emperors can tax um, and they have a nice income flooding in and they can use that to pay soldiers. They can buy in the best. They don't have to rely on this system of I give you the land, you give me, you come with your followers to serve in my army. They can, they can literally just cream off the best soldiers and pay them a salary. Uh, that's their great advantage. And that is why that's what makes the society very different from that in the medieval West. Got to ask as well, um, I'm going to ask about women in a second, but yeah. you're talking about people pouring in and that. Is this always um, when they switch the name and go, right, this is the Byzantine Empire from this period onwards. Is this always a real like melting pot of different skin colours and ethnicities and people and languages? I think so. Not everyone would agree with me on that. Mm. But if you look at where, where Byzantium is, where the Byzantine Empire is, it's in a kind of ethnic bowling alley. It's a crossroads, um, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. That's another way of putting it, because the fact is throughout the Middle Ages, really from the later Roman Empire right through, um, there's a constant street, a movement um, westwards of people coming in from the steppes of Asia, wave after wave after wave. Now, there's two things you can do uh, with dealing this, with this wave after wave. You can put up the defences and fight them off, which is what the uh, Byzantines often did, or you can kind of manage it and bring some of them in and then use and enroll them in your army um, and then use them to deal with the next lot. Um, and the Byzantines become very adept at that. So that does mean that Byzantine, Byzantium is actually quite, quite sort of multiracial. Um, so in Constantinople, yes, the official language is Greek. You'd hear Greek spoken in the streets, but you'd hear Armenian, you'd hear Turkic languages, you'd hear Latin-based languages as well, um, because a lot of Western Europeans um, came and served under the Byzantine Emperor's banner. Uh, so I do think it is a kind of melting pot, yes. It is. As I so I'm doing, like, I'm researching right now, um, sort of 1878 and the annexation and Bosnia and all of that stuff and up to the First World War. And it still is then, isn't it? It's like there's, there's no clear delineation between ethnicities and where people are and how they move about. It's very difficult to draw, like, later national boundaries in this area. You're absolutely right, because both Byzantium and the Ottoman empires uh, were not national empires. Um, they were based on, on an idea um, yeah. in Byzantium. The idea is, is that the emperor is the Roman emperor. Um, he is the emperor that Jesus Christ said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So Jesus Christ said, you've got to obey this guy. Um, and so effectively, the only thing that marks you out as a Byzantine is nothing to do with language or ethnicity. Um, it's that you accept the authority of the Byzantine emperor and Christianity as he defined it. Pretty nifty PR on behalf. Of oh, absolutely. It is. I mean, it's a political system. It's not saying it's a better one, but it's a yeah. different one from ethnic nationalism of the 19th century that you're looking at. Yeah. Jesus would want you to do as you're told. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's complete theocracy. Mm.
it does seem it does seem a more modern um, sort of society and and so on. So what, what about the role of women in that society? Um, we've got Anna Komnena's perspective through the Alexiad, but as a member of the royal family, she's an outlier. What's life actually like for women? Yes, I mean, Anna Komnena is, is a, of course, a wonderful um, example of, of, a, of a historian of Byzantium. She writes a, a biography of her father. She's, she's clearly extremely uh, literate and well-read, uh, and she was a literary figure in her day. Uh, and one is tempted to say, aha, you know, uh, look uh, how wonderful everything was for women in Byzantium. Um, I, I, I'd love to be able to say that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is a patriarchal society. Um, it is run by guys for guys. Um, you can't get around that. Um, so Anna Comnina, yes, she, she's, she is a princess of the blood, so she gets kind of special treatment. Um, but her education, her father actually said, well, no, you can't be educated. So she had to do it on the sly. She had to creep downstairs at night and take secret lessons with some of the palace administrators. Uh, most high status Byzantine women are expected to live their entire lives in the domestic sphere. If they go out, as they rarely did, uh, they were expected to be veiled uh, and not to be seen. Um, in the Byzantine palace, there was a special sort of area um, that is sealed off, and that's where the women live, a bit like the harem um, in the Ottoman period. So your life is sequestered. Um, having said that, when you look outside high-status women, um, you discover that actually in Byzantium, there are some opportunities that women have um, that don't seem to have been available in, say, the, in, in Christian Western Europe. You find them running market stalls. Um, you find them owning businesses. And then, shock horror probe, you actually find them um, owning property even when they are married. This was the law in Byzantium. In England, we didn't have that till the 1880s, did we, with the Married Women's Property Act. So that was um, so there are some aspects of Byzantium um, that seem to show that women are able to play a much more um, active role in society if you get away from the elites. But I think that probably the most famous thing to do with Byzantium is the Crusades, which is, well, it's not, I say it's very masculine, but it's not. There were lots mm-hmm. of women that went on the Crusade as well, and people don't necessarily think about that, do they? They just think of the guys with the swords and everything. Um, this is her father, isn't it? Is it her father, or is this an older Alexius Komnena's um, role in instigating the Crusade? So basically what happens is the reason that all these French people, because the First Crusade is predominantly starts off in France, doesn't it? The reason they all go wandering east is because the emperor asks for help. So why does he need help? And how is he able to persuade the Catholic Pope when he does an entire different branch because they're Orthodox Christians in Byzantium? How does he convince a guy who's not even really the exact same religion as them to do this and put all this effort in? So you've got some really interesting thoughts on this. So what's the standard perception, first of all, of how this unfolds? Uh, Yes, indeed. I mean, this is Anna's father. And she, she is one of our sources who, who tells us um, all about the First Crusade from the Byzantine perspective. Although, funnily enough, she never mentions um, Alexis's approach to um, the Pope. Um, you ask about the standard perception. The standard perception is here is the Emperor Alexis. He's having a, a few problems, you know, with the usual ethnic bowling alley um, problem is that, you know, groups of people are moving west. Uh, in this case, the Seljuk Turks. Um, and they've taken over 
really a very large chunk of, of Asia Minor, what is in fact now Turkey. They're almost at Constantinople. Um, and he wants those lands back. Um, but he's a little bit short of manpower for his armies. So he thinks, our oh, usual thing, um, I'll tell you what, I'll get on to the Pope. Because, <laughs> um, you know, he, well, he, he's, he's got a lot of moral influence in the West. So I'll yeah. get on to him and he can say to all these Western knights, come out and help us. Um, and um, while I'm at it with the religious thing, I'll say, OK, we can also do a little, little bit of talking about maybe resolving our religious differences while we're at it. So he sweetens the pill that way. So he sends some guys off in 1095. They meet with the Pope. They make this request. And then the standard um, argument goes, the Pope says, oh, good idea. But then he kind of changes it. He goes off to France and, sp- and, and, and preaches this sermon in which he says, go east, but not go east to Constantinople. He says, go east to Jerusalem. And uh, on, on off they go. movement for the emperor. Yes, exactly. And of course, the emperor, he'd expected maybe, you know, a few contingents for his army. He gets this gigantic, massive armed pilgrimage you know, tens of thousands of people. So I think as, as one historian put it, he asked for a glass of water and he gets a tsunami. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, which almost washes him away. So um, that's, that's the standard account of what happened. It's brilliant. So basically there's a point where the emperor looks out from his, I don't know, battlements or whatever and just thinks, oh, shit. Yeah. These people are going to need feeding, sustaining. Um, technically, they're there because you asked them to. Oh, bonkers. But I, I'm getting completely ahead of myself. I'll say, <laughs> what's your take on the whole thing? Because you have a different idea, don't you? Well, I think, you know, I, I'm slightly sceptical of this idea that Alexius has nothing whatsoever to do with it. And he, oh, what a surprise. Um, because I think the First Crusade needs to be put into context of what's happened before, how the Byzantines interact with their neighbours. And um, over the years, as I've already said, they've become very good at using one group of people um, to deal with another group. So here's some people coming in from the east. What do I do? I go west and I get some of the people in the west to come and deal with the people of the east. Standard practice. But of course, how are you going to induce these people to come um, from the West to the East to help you. Um, oh, I'm the Byzantine emperor. I need help. You know, well, yes, you know, sad and all that. But, you know, we've got other things. Yeah, to you're do. looking at like yeah. French people who yeah. in, like, in this kind of society may never or probably will never travel more than like yeah. 10 miles from their house. If you yeah. want them to go to Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've got problems at home. Thank you very much. Why should we come and, and help you? Now, normally, of course, the Byzantine emperor uses his secret weapon, which is this money he has. He has gold. So he comes really jingle, jingle. Here's lots of money. Come and, come and help me. But there's evidence that suggests that Alexius and his predecessors might have used another incentive. They might have said, and again, the evidence is slightly contradictory, which is why there's a debate. But they might have said, look, guys, we're Christians here. Those Seljuk Turks and Muslims, they're infidels. So um, that's another incentive to come. We'll pay you, but you'll also be doing a good thing. You'll be helping your souls by fighting these guys. It'll be a kind of, of holy war um, and this kind of thing. So they started the ball rolling now. So the Pope doesn't actually change what Alexius says. He just amplifies it a bit. He basically it, just yes. says to people, like, you're, here's a way for you to buy your way into heaven, essentially. Well, and he's a clergyman. He can say that. The emperor can't say, oh, if you if you participate, you'll go to heaven. But the pope can. And he does. Uh, And he also I think Alexis also probably 
in, in pitching his request, mentions Jerusalem, because he knows that this is a period when Jerusalem pilgrimage is just growing and growing and growing in the West. More and more people are going to Jerusalem, because that is a place, if you get there and you pray at the Holy Sepulchre, doesn't matter what you've done, all your sins are going to be forgiven. Uh, and the Pope then adds to that and says, well, it doesn't matter if you don't get to the Holy Sepulchre. If you die on the way, you'll go straight to heaven. Um, and they love this. And that's why, you know, tens of thousands sign up. So Alexius um, is not the unwitting victim of the First Crusade. He is partly responsible um, for its genesis. Um, having said that, I'd better mention now that there is a third point of view. Mm. Uh, and this is a, a guy called Peter Frankopan, who's written a very good book um, called The First Crusade, The Call from the East. Um, and in that book, Peter Frankopan argues that Alexius actually organized the First Crusade. And I think that's going too far. He actually said, oh, Alexius um, chose the route. He told the Crusaders where to go. Um, the whole thing was his idea. Um, and I think that's taking it too far. So you've got three views, really. You've got the older view, which is in Stephen Runson, which is very much poor old emperor, asks for a few contingents, gets the tsunami. Mm. Um, middle view, which is mine, Alexius manipulates opinion in the West by dangling a kind of, you know, the fact that it's going to be a holy war, who knows, and, and mentioning Jerusalem, safe in the knowledge that, you know, people in the West have no idea how far Jerusalem is from Constantinople. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, oh, it's all out, you know, it's all out there east. Well, it's a little bit, little bit beyond that castle. Yeah, a little bit beyond, you know. <laughs> you, you can nip into Jerusalem on a day off, you know, something like that. And then finally, Peter Frankopan, who says that, that Alexius organised the whole thing. Obviously, you pay your money, you takes your choice, but I, I'm, I'm firmly in the middle. Can I just ask as well, what because we're supposed to move on through the crusade here, but I'm going to wrap right. it up again. What is his reaction when all these people turn up? Do we know? Well, it depends who you, uh, who you read. I mean, Anna Comnina says um, he's horrified. Yeah. Um, because he thinks these people are actually out to co conquer Constantinople. They, they, they pose a threat. Um, and it's true, they're very large armies, you know, so here are large numbers of people heavily armed, including whether, whether the women were armed, I don't know, but they were certainly there. You're absolutely right. Recent scholarship has shown that women are an integral part of the Crusades. Um, you know, swilling around his empire, inevitably there's going to be problems. There's going to be looting, uh, there's going to be fights, all that sort of thing happens. So he is very wary of them, very wary indeed. Um, that's how she presents it. Um, the Crusader accounts present him as a sinister manipulator um, who basically doesn't really want the Crusade to succeed and is even in, in contact with its enemies and urging the Turks to attack them. Um, so he's. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Presented there as a most wicked emperor. Um, now, again, who you believe is entirely up to you, but Alexis didn't do badly out of the First Crusade. They wanted him to go with them to Jerusalem. He said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll come later. I'll come along later. <laughs> um, so off they go. They beat up the Turks. And then Alexius gathers his army and he just reconquers 
um, a large part of Asia Minor that he lost. Uh, meanwhile, the Crusaders are all being besieged in Antioch and they're all starving to death, surrounded by the Turks. Um, so Alexius marches towards Antioch to relieve them. But he gets halfway there and some deserters tell him, you know, it, it's very difficult there. You know, there's loads of Turks. There's a great big army. You know, I wouldn't bother. And he thinks to himself, I don't think I'll bother. So he goes home. Um, <laughs> I love that whole concept of yeah. go ahead and I'll yeah. catch you up. <laughs> but that's exactly what happened. He never does catch them up. He never goes to Jerusalem. And they, you know, but somehow or other, they do manage to take Antioch and they do manage to take Jerusalem. He pro probably never occurred to him this, this madcap enterprise would succeed. I mean, it's lunacy. Um, here are what, you know, 60,000 uh, Westerners heading uh, right into the, the very heart of the Islamic world. Um, how on earth are they going to be supplied? How on earth are they going to actually win? And they did win. Um, you, you know, so by any rational calculation, they should never have got anywhere near Jerusalem, but they did. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So moving on, um, culturally, how different is Byzantium? We've kind of touched on this already to some extent, but culturally, how different is Byzantium from the West, what we call the West? I know there are stories where crusaders are overawed by the standard of living in Constantinople. Is that an accurate perception? Well, yes, well, I, I, as we've seen, I mean, it, it, it's a Christian society, but Christian in a different way. Uh, there are slight differences that Byzantines have with the Western Church. They don't accept the authority of the, the Pope. That's mm. the main thing. Uh, and they don't they don't like the Western version of the creed. Um, and of course, they don't use Latin as their liturgical language. They, they use um, Greek. Uh, so it's kind of different. Um, but um, certainly then it comes to, well, how different? And I think the, the, the biggest surprise, I think, for the Crusaders when they arrive at Constantinople is the sheer size of the place. Um, must have been 1095, I don't know, 300,000 people. Um, this is where, where London or Paris could barely manage 20,000 at the wow. end of the 11th century. They, I mean, they grow a lot afterwards. They're just on the cusp of growing, but they're, they're nothing like it. So, and um, when you think about it, for mo you know, talking about the French Crusaders, you mentioned most of them would never have gone far from their village and all that. That means, you know, the largest stone building you might have seen would be your village church. Um, there might be a cathedral in the um, area, but remember, this is before the great 
Gothic cathedrals go up in France. So um, Notre Dame is, is then is, is a lot smaller than, than the one we've got there now. So here is a build, here is a city full of people, full of gigantic stone buildings, like the Cathedral of the Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia, um, which even today is awe-inspiring, even to those that you know now when we're used to gigantic buildings. Uh, so um, yes, um, you're arriving, you might feel a bit kind of overawed. Um, so what do the Crusaders do? Well, I think when people feel like that, when they, they're faced with apparent cultural superiority, is they, they big themselves up. They sort of say, well, actually, we're just as good as you. Um, and you definitely get this in Anna Comnina's account of the Crusaders, because she says that Alexius entertains some of the leaders um, in his palace. He doesn't actually let the rank and file into Constantinople. He's a bit worried they might sort of trash the place, which, of course, ultimately they did um, in 1204. But he, he brings them in, you know, brings the leaders in for a kind of party. And one of them, they're in the throne room, one of them just marches straight across the hall and plonks himself down on Alexis's throne. <laughs> and, and, and then proceeds to regale the company uh, with a story of his exploits. And he says, well, you know, um, in, in the town where I live, there's this stone cross thing and there's a kind of agreement that if anyone wants a fight, they go and stand at this cross. Well, I have to say, I've often been to that cross and I stood there for hours. Nobody dared come near me. How about that? So here he is, he's kind of boasting there, sitting on the emperor's throne. Eventually, somebody whispers in his ear, Look, that's the emperor's throne. You might like to move. And, and he does. But it's, this is how the Crusaders respond. They're saying, we're as good as you. And you start getting this discourse in the Crus Crusader sources of, well, the Byzantines, or the Greeks, as they call them, they're not real men. They're sort of, you know, they, they, can't, they don't know how to fight because what they do is they get other people to fight their wars for them. Uh, they're feeble and pathetic, and we uh, should hold them in contempt. For all their money, for all their big uh, cities, um, we're better than they are. Yeah, heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, technologically, how far advanced is Byzantium compared to the West? You've done some work um, which suggests that this is often overplayed, I think. Um, yes, you have to remember that, that historians of modern historians of Byzantium have got a bit of a, a, a chip on their shoulder because uh, they feel their, su their subject is, is marginalised. They're a bit like the Crusaders, in fact. They feel they need to big up their subject in response to the fact that uh, so, people, so few people know anything about it. So often what they do is they slightly overstate Byzantine, Byzantium's technological um, advantage. Um, and uh, there's, there's a good example of this. It's a thing called Greek fire. Um, Byzantine ships had a kind of siphon on the prow um, out of which they could fire stuff a bit like napalm. It's literally, li literally liquid fire, which will, will burn a water, and you use that to set fire to the enemy ships. If you've and seen Game of Thrones, that's the uh, green stuff that Tyrion chucks. Ah, oh, right. It's yeah. a, in popular culture. Yes, I, I, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's a gift for that. It, it really yeah. is. And it, it's a source of endless, endless fascination. And um, it, it really is. And, um, and it, it's credited with saving Constantinople from the armies of Islam in the seventh century. It gets besieged several times. And then allegedly this wonder weapon is brought to work. And you can see what's going on here. Historians are kind of constructing this in the light of the Second World War, where technology does make a big difference about who comes out on top. Um, the more you look at the, in the sources, you suddenly realize actually this isn't that decisive. Um, very often there's another reason why the, the Arab sieges failed. 
And, and also somebody actually tried to reconstruct this, this Greek fire apparatus. And eventually they did get it to work. But um, in order to work, you have to be virtually next to the ship you want to fire it at. You can't sit at a safe distance and press a button and whoosh, uh, the enemy ship goes up in smoke. Um, so you have to be right up upon it, uh, on it, really. And I have to say, it was probably terrifyingly dangerous. Um, when you think that they've got this apparatus mounted on, on, on the front of a wooden ship, which is caulked with pitch, um, the number of accidents they must have had. Um, and lastly, of course, it only really works, I suspect, if people aren't expecting it. If people yeah, know you've like, got it. Yeah. It seems like it'd be, you'd be more likely to set fire to your own ship than oh my somebody God, yeah. else's. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like early cannon. I mean, the first cannon they had, they killed far more of the people firing them than actually you know, than, than of the enemy. You know, it, it really was. So I think it's a kind of scary pyrotechnic. If you're yeah. somebody, you've never heard of it, and suddenly whoosh, and they, they, the, 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 the siphon is shaped like a, a dragon's mouth. So the, this, this fire shoots out of the dragon's mouth. And if you haven't seen it before, and then, of course, it lands on the ship and you, you put water on it, and it doesn't do any good. It seems like magic. So in those situations, it does work. But it's, um, you know, I, think, I think it's overstated, this idea of the technologically brilliant Byzantine Empire. Um, but, I hasten to say with a but, um, there are some things the Byzantines had um, which are undeniably um, advanced as we, we would see it. Um, one of them, extraordinarily, is hospitals. Um, there's evidence um, that in hospitals, I mean, hospitals exist throughout the medieval world in Islam and Christianity. They're usually run by monks or nuns. And most of them are really what we call a hospice. They take you in, um, they feed you, they keep you warm um, and keep you comfortable, and then you die. Um, Southern hospitals seem to be different. They are run by monks, but they actually employ secular doctors. Uh, and those doctors, the job of those doctors was to implement a course of treatment for specific maladies. And there were hospitals which, which specialised in particular um, ailments or particular fractures. Uh, and that is a big difference. And the biggest difference comes at the end. Uh, there were women's wards. And on the women's wards, surprise, surprise, there were women doctors. So these are secular people. They're not monks and nuns. They're trained in medicine. They're employed as doctors. And that is something that does mark Byzantium out. So having um, poured scorn on, on this idea of the technologically advanced Byzantium, there are aspects of Byzantine life which do seem to be very advanced. We've talked about the First Crusade. Um, I think we should talk about the Fourth Crusade and the way it effectively gets hijacked by the Venetians into an assault on Constantinople. Um, tell our listeners about what happens during the Fourth Crusade. Yes, Fourth Crusade is, is kind of ultimate irony, isn't it? Because um, the first one um, was launched partly to help Byzantium. Um, and the, um, the fourth one ends up um, in 1204 attacking and capturing and looting uh, the Byzantine capital of Constantinople. How did it happen? Um, the Fourth Crusade was not supposed to go to Constantinople. It's supposed to go to Egypt to um, fight the Muslims there uh, and then ultimately to recapture Jerusalem. That's the idea. The trouble was it was a bit short of money. Uh, so when a Byzantine prince turns up and says, um, hey, guys, why don't you come with me to Constantinople? Um, they're just out of Venice at this point. Come with me to Constantinople and um, 
restore my father to the throne. He's been deposed by his brother. And if you do that, I'll give you all the money and supplies you need to go to Egypt. So they think, great, our, um, our problems are solved, our financial problems are solved. So they sail to Constantinople, they restore the father, um, and then hand in the bill. And actually, the emperor can't pay them. And um, so that's when they um, attack and capture Constantinople. Um, what I would say, though, uh, in response to your question, the Venetians are innocent. Uh, that's another thing that's come out of, of recent research. They, they, they really didn't do it. Um, it wasn't their fault. Um, this is all a theory of a 19th century scholar um, who claimed that he found a treaty between the Venetians and the Sultan of Egypt. And in the treaty, it says, it says, you know, you Venetians, you're going to have all these trading concessions in Alexandria. I won't charge you a penny in customs duties, um, and you can trade there as much as you like. So Venetians have this treaty. Um, and of course, suddenly they see that the uh, Fourth Crusade is going to Egypt. Um, they think, oh, no, uh, that's our treaty lost. Uh, we can't have that. So they um, deliberately engineer things to make it go to Constantinople instead. Uh, and that way their, their, um, their treaty is safe. Uh, and for some years, this, um, this theory held, held water. And you, know, you often hear it cited, you often hear the Venetians blamed. The problem was the whole theory was based on a mistake. Uh, the guy who found the treaty uh, misdated it. He dated it to 1202, which is the very moment when the Fourth Crusade gets diverted. Um, somebody looked at it and said, hang on a minute, it's 1212. It's after the Fourth Crusade. So it can't have been a reason um, for, the, um, for the Venetians um, to take the um, crusade to Constantinople. And actually, when you look at the, the accounts, the Venetians pay very little part um, in trying to get the, the crusade to go to Constantinople. Um, so um, I think we should let the Venetians off the hook. Mm -hmm. um, but, then, <laughs> but then, of course, you're going to say, well, if it wasn't the Venetians, who was it? Um, right. Well, good point. Um, well, you could say partly it's the Byzantines themselves, because it was a Byzantine prince who actually asked um, the Fourth Crusade to Constantinople and then couldn't pay them. So I think the Byzantines themselves have to pay, uh, you know, um, uh, have to take some of the blame. Um, but I think, again, I'm going on saying this, I think you need to put the, the whole episode in context of what, what had happened over the previous hundred years. Because many of the Crusaders really felt that the Byzantines, as Christians, hadn't actually pulled their weight in the effort to conquer and hold Jerusalem for Christianity. After all, what we look at Alexius, um, while they're fighting the Muslims um, in Antioch, where's he? Um, he's off um, regaining territory for his empire, and he never turned up and helped them. So this, this perception grows and grows. And then, of course, the Byzantines discover, the, the, the Crusaders discover that the Byzantines have a rather cozy relationship with their main enemy, Saladin, the Sultan of Syria and Egypt. Uh, they have a treaty with him, um, whereby uh, they have a nice arrangement whereby the, uh, uh, the Sultan will allow their clergy to say, to look after the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem after 1187. And uh, the Byzantines allowed Saladin uh, to control the mosque in Constantinople. There was a mosque in Constantinople. It was there for visiting Arab merchants. Uh, this all sounds very suspicious to the Crusaders. And they start to think, hang on, these Byzantines, they need to help us. Now, there's no point in them giving military help because we all know they're totally useless. So what we want is their money. 
and their supplies. And so in 1191, the King of England, Richard I, uh, known as the Lionheart, he's on his way on the Third Crusade to the Holy Land. Um, he stops off on the island of Cyprus, which belonged to the Byzantine Empire, and he conquers it. And he takes it over, and that becomes a kind of forward base and a supply centre for future crusades. So basically, they're squeezing resources out of Byzantium. Now, that's what happens in, in, in 1203-4 with the Fourth Crusade. Effectively, uh, the Byzantines promise the crusaders all these resources. Um, if they'll just restore the father to the throne, they do that. They aren't given these resources. Okay, they say, we'll take them. We'll take them by force. Um, and they prepare to attack Constantinople um, in early 1204. At this point, some of the crusaders say, um, hang on a minute, didn't we take a vow um, to fight against the infidel? And this is fighting against Christians. This doesn't seem right, but it's all right because some of the clergy, some of the French clergy pop up and say, don't worry, guys, um, these Christians are not real Christians because they're, they're schismatics, <laughs> you see, they're, they're because they don't accept the authority of the Pope. So it's all right. Oh, fine, fine. So then they attack. Uh, and they take over Constantinople. And of course, they loot the place, all those resources that they, they want. They're there because it was a very, very wealthy city. Um, the hall was, was gigantic. And most of it went into the, into the pockets of, uh, of the leaders. So to some extent, it, it's um, what happens in 1204 is a, partly the fault of the Byzantines themselves. And partly this, the result of this perception that's growing among the Crusaders about the Byzantines being at best lukewarm about the, uh, the Crusades and at worst actually, in, actually colluding uh, with um, infidels. Bonkers. I the <laughs> level of manipulation across oh, yes. centuries by the church is a subject for a whole different podcast. Of, we probably don't want to touch it with a barge bowl. <laughs> we got, we're getting towards, so let's talk about, so your book span was 602 to 1453. So 1453 is when the Muslims take Constantinople, isn't it? But does, are, we, are we looking from the Fourth Crusade and this sort of, this, what happens with the, not the Venetians who are innocent? But um, are we looking at the beginning of the decline of the Byzantine Empire? Um, I suppose you are, really. I mean, for, for years and years, um, the Byzantines had fought um, the Arabs and the Turks. Um, there had been attempts by uh, the Arabs to take Constantinople in, in the seventh century. Um, I believe that in one of the hadith of the, of the Prophet Muhammad, um, there is one that says, you know, what a glorious day it will be for Islam. Um, when the city of, of Constantinople is, is taken. Um, but they, they didn't succeed. And the irony, of course, is that when it does fall, uh, it falls to a Christian army, the, the, um, the Fourth Crusade. And that should have been the end. I mean, it should be 602 to 1204, it should have been, because um, once the Crusaders have Constantinople, they then proceed to um, take over the provinces as well. They, they actually create this successor state to the Byzantine Empire. It's often called the Latin Empire of Constantinople. Um, so that should have been it, but it wasn't. Uh, the Latin Empire of Constantinople never really takes off um, and the Byzantines revive. Um, they sort of get together um, at Nicaea um, and they create their, a mini empire uh, in the east. And from that base in 1261, they reconquer Constantinople 
and the Byzantine Empire is uh, recreated and it carries on as before. I mean, so certainly by, by um, 1261, uh, the official line in Constantinople is, yes, we've had a bit of a hiatus, folks, but we're back and it's business as normal. Basically, I think of the end of the Byzantine Empire, Byzantine, I can't say it, I don't know how he's supposed to say it. Um, I think of the end of this empire as being rather like, you know, like a snake and the snake is the Ottoman Empire and it just slowly squeezes the life out of it, doesn't it? Up to 1453 when like the big event happened. That's eventually what happens, to be honest with you. I think that's a very good description of it. But of course, um, in the 13th century, that's still a long way off. Um, what happens is that after 1261, there's still various potentates in Western Europe who want to get Constantinople back. Uh, the King of Sicily was the, the, the main mover behind this. So the Byzantines have to face this threat from the West. So they, they move all their resources to defending themselves against this possible um, Fourth Crusade II, you know, which is, is going to come from the West and take Constantinople. While they're doing that, it means that, that they have to um, strip the defences on the eastern frontier. Uh, and that meant the Turks were able to move slowly westwards um, into Asia Minor. Now, at this stage, all the Turks are, are lots of small, small tribes, um, really following one particular leader. Uh, and there's lots of different groups of them. But the, the one that you know, we all know from history is a group known as the Osmanda Turks. Um, we call them Ottomans. And these, these Ottoman Turks, this small group, um, happens to take over the land opposite the Dardanelles um, in what is now northwestern Turkey. And there they probably would have stayed had they not had a stroke of luck. Um, because in the spring of 1354, uh, there's an earthquake. Uh, the epicenter is somewhere in the northern Aegean. Uh, so what it does is it brings the walls of the town of Gallipoli um, crashing down uh, and leaves the city undefended. Now, Gallipoli is on the European side of the Dardanelles. So the Turks see this, the Ottomans see this, they all get into boats, over they go, capture Gallipoli, and then they have a foothold in Western Europe. So in, in Europe generally, that's that they've crossed over from, from Asia to Europe, and it's from there they kind of fan out um, and they cut Constantinople off by land. And so from that moment, effectively, that's when the empire is, is dead. It's dead in the water. It doesn't end at that point in the mid-14th century, um, but it's, um, it's pretty much had it by then. Um, it carries on, and then you get the situation you were talking about, Alex, where effectively it's being throttled um, by this, um, you know, you, 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 you could say the Ottomans are like a snake. I mean, basically, the Ottomans are quite laid back sort of guys, actually. I think they've, they've got a bad press. They, for a long time, they leave Constantinople alone. Um, they're quite happy for it to act as a kind of trading entrepot in the middle of their dominions. Um, but by the mid 15th century, um, it doesn't seem to make sense anymore. And by this time, they've got cannon uh, with which they can attack the wall. So they think, oh, the hell with it. Let's polish the place off, which they do. 29th of May, 1453, uh, the city falls. And that effectively um, is indeed the end of the Byzantine Empire. You've been absolutely amazing. This, I know about Kate, but I'm like, I'm so excited from listening to you. For the last well, you've been missing years. all these years. You know, I know we've been missing out on this amazing stuff. I feel like we've done a really broad sweep today, but um, that we'd be much better off getting you back at some point to, to zoom in on a particular aspect of the Byzantium and all it entailed and, and have a 
a bit of a deeper dive into one aspect of it rather than expecting you to cover all the crusades and everything else at the same time but thank you so much this has been brilliant great pleasure yeah, thank amazing. you thank you both yeah yeah really good thank you yeah i'm a bit speechless because uh i didn't i didn't know really very much of anything about it so yeah it's uh, it's been fascinating thank you when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.